Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, March 11th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, March 13th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. And we have also a couple of special guests that we'll introduce in just a moment. How's it going, ladies? Good. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. The gang's all here, so yeah. it's going to be a great episode. I can't believe we're in mid-March already. Like, we're, yeah. we're here. This year's moving. The year is a quarter over. Mm, almost the equinox <laughs> is coming up right it's right. almost airy season so mm. let's celebrate this mm. yeah don't tell my roommate she loves that <laughs> airy season's always fun for me i have tons of aries friends so yeah. well, of course it's the best shout out to all the aries in the world uh, fiery energy yeah. exactly it also is a time to prioritize <laughs> if we finish with quarter one woo where are we in this year all right. So for today's episode, for our local news segment, we have a special interview um, in our continued partnership with NYU Langone. Um, that's going to be with Dr. Judy Zykoff, as well as Chief Vincent Mann. And we'll get back to um, that in just a moment. For our national news segment, we have a story about the opioid crisis victims who confronted the Sackler family in court. For world news, we'll be talking about Venezuela releasing two American prisoners. All right, so we're going to go ahead and kick off the episode with our special interview, Dr. Judy Zykov. How are you doing today? Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's really my pleasure to be back and uh, continuing with our series of the NYU Radio Free Brooklyn Partnership. Yes, always good. We had a little delay, but we are back on track, and I am very interested, interested, excited, that's the word, <laughs> to speak with our guest today. Would you like to introduce Chief Mayor? I would. It'd be my, my great pleasure. Uh, many years ago, about nine years ago, I had the opportunity to, um, to meet the Ramapo Lenape tribal nation of southern uh, New York State and northern New Jersey. And I also had the great opportunity to work with them um, due to many environmental issues, which uh, they are suffering on a daily basis. Um, the, uh, with the community engagement, um, I met Chief Mann through the community engagement. I met Chief Mann, Chief Vincent Mann, who is the chief of the, um, the Ramapo Lenape Turtle Clan, and he'll talk to you a lot more about, about the uh, tribal nation. And we've worked together, as I said, for quite a quite a long time. He is, besides being uh, an eloquent speaker, uh, he is also a very caring and compassionate person. And he's trying to make a difference. And so it's my great pleasure to introduce him and to my friend. Chief Mann. Thank you, Judy. Um, and thank you all for uh, inviting me here today um, to learn a little bit about myself, but uh, more importantly, um, the Turtle Clan of the Ramapo Lenape Nation. Um, so I look forward to uh, our conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for being here. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in. So can you just start off with giving us some background of who is the Lenape Nation and what are um, the importance of the Ramapo Mountains, which is the area that we're going to be talking about today? Um, what is the importance of that to your clan and what you've been going through over the last 50 years? 
So um, the Rand Polenapi Nation uh, currently um, is a uh, tribal state recognized nation. Um, and we uh, reside in, again, uh, southern New York, northern New Jersey. Um, this has been the our home for thousands of years. And um, the importance of this place, uh, even to today, is that um, it provided us a refuge uh, where we were able to stay uh, in our homelands. And uh, for those of our ancestors who chose to be be left behind, um, to stay here. Um, with that being said, um, you know, that kind of brings us forward to, um, 50 something years ago, uh, being that community who, um, was able to, you know, basically hide in plain sight, um, in the Ramapil mountains, um, as a refuge for our people. It also became a refuge for those people who were, um, you know, willing to commit crimes against, uh, you know, our natural world and um, humanity. Um, and with that being said, uh, back in the early 1960s, uh, Ford Motor Corporation had created a subsidiary uh, company called Ringwood Realty where they bought 900 acres of land in uh, Ringwood, New Jersey, um, which consisted of the mining complex that dated back to the 1700s, um, where our people uh, supported that, you know, through making charcoal and eventually actually working in these mines. Um, their plan was to um, remove nearly 1,100 people um, from the Turtle Clan from this 900 acres and to build a self-contained um, executive community for the Ford Motor Plant, which had opened up in 1956 in Mawa, New Jersey. Um, when those plans fell through, around 1964, um, our people record, you know, that that is when the dumping of toxic chemicals from the Ford Motor Plant uh, began to be disposed of. Um, on the land uh, where we hunted, where we fished, where we swam, where we played, where we gathered. And unbeknownst to our people, um, we didn't have any knowledge of, you know, these chemicals that were being dumped, um, how they would affect our natural environment, but also how they would affect us and how they would affect our way of living um, off the land. Uh, currently, uh, our community has shrunk enormously uh, down to probably less than 300. Uh, we have every health ailment that you can imagine. Um, we have had um, no help from the federal government nor from the state of New Jersey in uh, regards to our health, uh, regards to relocation. Um, and, you know, currently this is, this is some place that we're, we're still living in. Um, there is currently a record of decision which is being implemented at this time, and our community is basically um, exhibiting signs of PTSD, um, having to relive this for the ninth time, I believe. Um, we have community members who have not had to utilize asthma pumps um, and have had difficulty breathing and over 
three to four years. Um, this is due to the fact that um, they are digging up and spreading out um, uh, chemicals, you know, that have been dumped all these years ago, which are still prevalent. Um, their plan is to leave it in place. Um, just in the month of February, uh, the air monitors um, recorded 16 times. Uh, out of those 16 times, 50% uh, of those, um, there was an action alert that went off that was recorded. Um, the EPA, the state of New Jersey, Ford, none of them uh, had chose to offer that information to our community, which is consistent with, you know, um, not relocating our community, not cleaning this site up um, the way that it originally should have been done from the start. Um, but in those recordings, you know, Recon, who is Ford's uh, people on the ground, you know, they came up with these excuses for when there was the particulate that went off and they said, oh, the, you know, the, uh, it, it built up with dust. So we cleaned it and then we zeroed it, um, back to zero and everything is fine. And then the other part that is very concerning is that the VOCs, the, uh, volatile organic chemicals, um, went airborne and, um, was collected by the, um, air monitors. And Recon decided that, oh, well, there was buildup of humidity on the bulb. Um, so we zeroed it out and everything's fine. And so 50% of the time that these monitors have been in place, they've gone off. And for 100% of the reaction or action on Recon's level or the EPA was, that, oh, this is okay. It's just the machine screwed up. And, you know, this is just playing over again. It's like Groundhog Day for us, right? Uh, they know, um, they know what's taken place here. They know what their failures have been. Um, they've yet taken any responsibility for any of their actions or inactions. Awesome. Thank you so much for that um, roundup. And this is really disheartening that you guys have been going through this for so long. Um, I was doing a little research and I seen that the area was listed and then delisted as a Superfund site. Mm -hmm. um, can you first, maybe Judy, you can jump here as well. Tell our listeners a little bit what a Superfund site is and what happened with that um, back and forth with its listing. So a Superfund site is a federally declared uh, site. It's because of the extensive amount of pollution, contamination, chemicals, uh, it is put on a list called the National Priorities List, and then it turns over to the U.S. EPA. Um, the uh, chemicals usually are very toxic, very adverse, could have cancer-causing properties as well as other disease-inducing um, properties like heavy metals or the volatile organic chemicals that um, Chief Mann was talking about. And very often the first thing they try to do is to have the uh, responsible party, uh, who in this case would be Ford, uh, Ford Motor Company, to uh, excavate and to do all of the cleanup. Um, so they try to locate all Superfund uh, sites before it goes to the federal government for cleanup. It will go back to the responsible party. If, however, there is 
extensive, extensive, extensive uh, contamination. The, um, the company, if they still exist, can try to do the cleanup and EPA will oversee it. And that's exactly what happened with the uh, Ringwood Mine area. And so um, they, Ford uh, had their contractors um, initiate it and clean, so-called clean it up. And um, they declared done. And so they delisted it off of the national priority list and said it's now clean. A few years later, and Chief can fill you in on the specific dates, a few years later, people were walking through the mountain. So just to get a picture of the Ramapo and where Ringwood is, it's very, uh, it's a rural area of New Jersey. And it's beautiful with all the mountains around it. Um, and so people were going hiking in the woods and they came across more yellow in the streams and paint sludge, um, which is what was dumped primarily and um, came across these mountains of paint sludge as well as these metal containers containing it. And so it was, um, they told them what they found and they uh, came back and they relisted it. This is the only Superfund site in the country that's been relisted twice. Wow. And that's, you know, that goes to tell who was actually cleaning the area and what went into it being taken off that list. What were the reasons behind that, you know? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, I'm sure Chief can elaborate on this, but they, when they tried to remove all of the, uh, all of the material, and we're talking about a 500-acre site, uh, when they tried to remove it and bring it, they could not bring it anywhere. It was too toxic to be dumped anywhere else. Yeah, that's correct. The particular area uh, that we're talking about is actually the area where they are currently uh, digging down probably 10, 12 feet or more pulling up um, intermingled trash along with all these different chemicals, along with dioxin, which is one of the deadliest chemicals known. Um, and so when they removed material from there, they had sent it, this is years ago, they had sent it to Flint, I mean, to Michigan, where it had gone through uh, the furnace twice. And at the second time that they ran it through, um, that facility called the EPA immediately and told them to get all of the people out of there um, because the chemicals that they were, after being treated, were too toxic to be buried anywhere in the continental United States uh, or U.S. territories. Uh, they stopped. Um, they removed all the people out of there except for our people. And they never came back there to clean any more of that material out of there. That is the same exact place um, that is currently, you know, one of the areas um, that they're working on. Um, in 1994, when uh, Walter Mugden, um, who is the person who signed off in 1994, that everything was clean. It wasn't that they just signed off on it, right? They certified it. They certified that everything had been removed. The state of New Jersey certified that everything had been removed. Ford and the town of Ringwood, who is also a PRP uh, responsible party, certified that it was clean. And they basically gave our people, you know, um, 
a death sentence because they told us that everything was clean and we could go back to living the way that we were for thousands of years off the land. Um, 1994 was also the year that we were denied our federal petition for uh, federal acknowledgement as a Native American tribe. So we don't see those things as being different because if we were recognized as a federally recognized tribe at that time, we would have actually been a true stakeholder where we would sit in the same room with Ford, who did the dumping, with town, with the town of Ringwood, New Jersey, who, who asked for all of the industrial waste to be disposed of in this community, um, as well as the state of New Jersey, who's also a responsible party, but the EPA refuses to list them as such, even though they gave the permit uh, for a year to have that dumping occur. And through uh, research of, of archives, we discovered that um, there was a congressional hearing and Ford Motor Company acknowledged that they were disposing of 16 million pounds a quarter, which amounts to 32 million tons that the state of New Jersey had allowed under their permit to be dumped in our community, literally in our community. And when you want to take and look at the comparison of, of uh, Love Canal, right? which was famous, which the president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, stepped in to clear the way for red, of the red tape to have these people removed. There was 23,000 pounds or 23,000 tons of, of toxic material that was there. This is 32 million tons in one year that had been disposed of. This all sits less than a mile above the Wanaku Reservoir which is one of the other major resources for the state of New Jersey in the region, um, is the water. And the Wanaki Reservoir feeds uh, nearly four to six million people every day. So wow. for 50, 57 years, you know, we're not the only ones who've been impacted. Exactly. And I just want our listeners to know, this is like 40 miles out of New York City. This isn't far. You know, this is just taking a drive, you know, across the river and it's affected New Jersey residents um, around the area and then also you know um, larger communities that are by this reservoir so this is you know this could be affecting you and I just want to ask what can we do um, and how can we help to leverage this conversation to support the community um, what are some suggestions that you would give for our listeners or anyone who is interested in taking some action to help the people of, of in the community that's being affected by this well, I mean, you know, uh, uh, our community, again, has dwindled down so so low. I mean, we've lost, you know, 10-year-old boys blind and two rare cancers died in his uncle's arms. We've lost, you know, a 30-year-old uh, mother of three, uh, the youngest being one years old, and her mother who just died of brain cancer um, a month ago. So... Our community um, really does need to be relocated, um, not just because of the dumping, but also because of the mines that are unstable. Yeah. Um, you know, we our community needs to be able to realize hope again. Um, it'll take a very long time for us to put trust in um, the outside governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that one of the things that community, uh, the larger populations can do is, uh, you know, maybe we have the ability to create an online petition where we can get hundreds of thousands of people to be in support of relocating our community. 
Um, apparently, you know, the EPA um, doesn't have that on their on their radar because they believe that the actions that they've taken are um, protective of human health and environment, which, you know, is um, we don't look at that as being necessarily true. When you push all these chemicals to the middle and put a cap on it, it doesn't stop the groundwater or even the surface water from running through there and carrying those chemicals, you know, to a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, it is important for, you know, the larger community to raise their voices and their concern about this because, you know, hundreds of thousands of people come from New York City, from Patterson, from Newark, from all over the place to the Ranapo Mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hike here, they play here, they fish here, and they have no intimate knowledge of the devastation that um, has taken place in our community, nor um, the risks that are poised to them by these chemicals being left here. Um, so, you know, that would be one of the one of the things that I could see would be that maybe, you know, uh, you know, your organization could be a sponsor of that, maybe. Um, to keep this story alive, because, you know, throughout history, you know, this has been um, something that they continually try to keep inside of a box, you know, like I don't know more in Canada. When I don't know more happened in Canada, the only way that we could be supportive of that was through online, right? Mm -hmm. And seeing it on Facebook and things like that. But the government here had blocked that out because they didn't want the indigenous people, you know, that... um, Native America to stand up, right, in support of that. Yeah. Um, we have that same issue here. Okay. And that's that sounds like that's something very doable. So, um, you know, it doesn't take a lot to get the community engaged through a petition. I'll definitely look into that uh, moving forward. And I'd like to thank you so much for telling your story um, and sharing how this devastation has really impacted. Judy, do you want to have any final words on the interview? I would. Thank you, Reese. Um, So many of the people who are living in Brooklyn and New York State, uh, including many of my own colleagues, had absolutely no idea that there were indigenous peoples or Native American populations living so close. Um, The the Lenape tribe made its way to where they are now um, from um, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York City. In fact, in Brooklyn, many, many artifacts still remain uh, to be dug up and, and protected. So um, my, my reason for um, wanting Chief Mann, and, and so graciously you've accepted that, uh, is that this is not away from your neighborhood. This is in your neighborhood. This is in, um, exactly. in your circle of concern. And so I'd like to just ask all the people who are listening and are thinking, oh, well, what do, you know, there's nothing here in Brooklyn or there's nothing here in New York City, and you know, that's too bad. Well, it's more than just too bad. It, it can affect you potentially through the reservoirs, Chief Mann talked about, but it, it, it's also our heritage. And yeah. I think we have to step up and say something and appreciate. And especially during these times where marginalized and disenfranchised populations are having a voice, it's time we gave the Native Americans their voice. I absolutely Thank you. agree.
I absolutely agree. Thank you so much for being here, both of you, and explaining, um, again, this situation that needs more attention. It's right outside of New York City. Um, you know, we definitely need to look into how we can help the Lenape Nation move and also be more proactive in fights against environmental justice. So we're going to go ahead and take our first music break of the day. This is Queen Latifah with Unity. We'll be right back. can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Jasmine with our national news story. Take it away. Okay, so this story is um, something that I read on AP News. It was written by Jennifer Peltz and Jeff Mulvihill. 
The title is Facing Purdue Owners Brings Pain, Closure for Opioid Victims, and it was written on Thursday, March the 10th. Uh, I'm going to mostly be reading from that article, but some things have been um, cut out or shortened just for the sake of time. For those who don't know, the Sacklers are the family who owns OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma. About two dozen people who have suffered from or lost relatives to opioid addiction had waited for years for a direct confrontation with members of the Sackler family in court over the consequences of the painkiller that made them a fortune while helping fuel a deadly drug epidemic. This chance finally came at an extraordinary bankruptcy hearing on Thursday. Several people who gave statements said they valued being able to speak for their loved ones and show solidarity, and that they had gotten a grain of resolution. The hearing, highly unusual for U.S. bankruptcy court, was suggested by a mediator who helped broker a potential settlement of thousands of lawsuits against Purdue. If it wins final approval, the deal will generate $10 billion or more to fight addiction and overdoses, with the Sacklers chipping in as much as $6 billion in exchange for protection from civil lawsuits. Up to 149,000 people who have struggled with addiction or who lost loved ones to it are due to split $750 million under the settlement. One after another, victims logged in from Hawaii to New Hampshire on Thursday with accounts of surgeries and illnesses that led to OxyContin prescriptions, followed by dependency, despair, rounds of drug abuse treatment, personal and financial ruin, and, all too often, death by overdose or suicide. Former Purdue President and Board Chairman Richard Sackler listened by phone, his son, David Sackler, and another family member, Teresa Sackler, did appear on camera, and they appeared attentive but showed little reaction. And the article mentions that some families felt disrespected that the president um, just appeared by phone. He didn't show his face. The Sacklers have never unequivocally apologized. They released a statement last week saying they had acted lawfully but regret that OxyContin unexpectedly became part of an opioid crisis that has brought grief and loss to far too many families and communities. OxyContin, a pioneering extended-release prescription painkiller, hit the market in 1996. Purdue and other drug companies funded efforts to suggest that prescribers consider opioids for a wider range of pain conditions than thought appropriate. Purdue asserted that far fewer than 1% of people prescribed opioids developed addictions, though there weren't rigorous studies to support this claim. Waves of fatal opioid overdoses followed from prescription drugs, heroin, and most recently fentanyl and similar drugs. Purdue documents made public and lawsuits appear to show Sackler family members at times downplaying the crisis. Tiffany Scott's daughter had been prescribed OxyContin for sickle cell disease pain, and she sadly lost her daughter to an overdose at the age of 28. For once, we felt to have a sense of power over privilege as it pertains to the Sacklers, she said. Didi Yoder's 21-year-old son, Chris Yoder, died from an overdose and feels vindicated by the bankruptcy case and public scrutiny of the Sacklers. She says, being part of this court record is very important, and my, my son's story being part of the record. 
Uh, she said that after making her statement during the hearing. There's no sign that the Sacklers will be criminally charged, although seven U.S. senators last month asked the DOJ, well, the Department of Justice, to consider it. Purdue Pharma, meanwhile, has twice pleaded guilty to criminal charges. Um, so we'll definitely share the full link to the story on our social media pages so you can read the entire thing. There's a lot of um, examples of anecdotes from the families that are you know, very, very sad. Um, and if you would like to read more, uh, there's a nonfiction book out by American journalist and nonfiction author Beth Macy called Dope Sick that goes into a lot of detail about uh, the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. And that book was turned into a mini series that you can watch on Hulu of the same name. Wow, thank you so much for all that coverage, Jasmine. This is uh, a sign of the times, right? I remember when they first really started um, um, really talking about the opioid crisis and, and the language that was used and how the community was affecting and how much it had changed and became so common. Um, so now be here is, is an interesting turn. Yeah. Yeah. No. And do you guys remember when people started understanding this connection, when it became part of the popular I feel like it was like early 2000s. When I did watch the miniseries, I didn't realize how long ago it had begun. But I do remember as a child, like where I grew up, like it was known that people would be addicted to pill. Like that people mm. would, it was known that like, oh, so-and-so hurt their back. Mm. And then the next thing you know, they were, you know, addicted to I didn't know specifically what it was, but like it yeah. would be talked about or like people getting caught up in stuff where like their parents or whatever were medical professionals, but they would get busted for like giving people drugs they weren't supposed to. And I didn't make the connection until now that like, oh, that's probably what it was. Mm. Okay. Like there were like clinics and stuff around where I went to school for people that were addicted to opioids, but you know, yeah. being a kid, I didn't put those things together at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just did a quick um, search and it says it began in the 1990s when they start seeing a lot of overdose deaths. And then it was a second wave in 2010. Mm -hmm. So that whole 20 year span, you mm -hmm. know, um, this was happening. And then I guess, I mean, I guess it never really stopped, but it became more aggressive yeah. um, there in 2010. And it's really sad because um, in 2010, there was a lot of also connections with that and, um, 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 heroin mm -hmm. and the opioid crisis, you know, things being caught up with that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I remember growing up, I grew up in the Midwest. So, I remember when this started to hit, and it was kind of one of those things where, you know, you didn't really want to look down on people because they have to take their medications to, right. you know, I guess feel better right. if they're in chronic pain. Right. But, but then it just yeah. went out of control because there was no regulations around it and people were abusing them and selling them and all types yeah. of shit and doctors got incentives for prescribing them right like right. exactly that's yeah. a huge part of it I so in 2009 I got my wisdom teeth out and they I don't think it was oxy but I think it was like Percocet it was something like really intense that they prescribed me as like a painkiller like offhand like I didn't ask for anything like they were just like here like just take this and my dad was helping me recover and I took one pill and I got kind of nauseous like whatever and then he like basically threw the rest out and I yeah, yeah and I he was probably tuned into that stuff like if you reach if like 2010 was when it I think I think that's right that sounds right that 2010 is when it became the current 
like universal yeah. understanding that this stuff, yeah. this is bad. And yeah. I had no idea, right? But it, my dad seemed to be tuned into that, so I'm really grateful. He was like, you don't, and I didn't need it. Yeah. I literally moved out of my college dorm the next day, like with my mouth full. Like I didn't need heavy duty painkillers, right? But the doctor just like handed it out like candy, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. If you haven't seen the miniseries, it was very well done. It's obviously very sad and it is yeah. based on real people. And of course, you know, they're actors. So there's things that are dramatized, but they do a very good job of showing examples of like real people who, you know, before this drug became a thing, they wouldn't have been prescribed anything near like that level of strength. But then mm -hmm. suddenly it was like being pushed, pushed, pushed mm -hmm. on stuff where like there were alternatives that were not as dangerous. And just the extent to which they like the lengths that they went to to hide how dangerous the drug was and the chances of you being dependent. It's really, really sad because you know, these things have such ripple effects, not only for the individual, but like for the family, for the community, like, and for it to be this long, like the one of the women in the article, I didn't want to read all of it, because it would have been very long, but they go through like individual people's stories. And one of them is someone who has been struggling for 20 something years. Jeez, that's this, crazy. You know, so for her to finally get her time to say something to them, like, you know, it's not going to change like what happened in the past, but it's good. At least they could speak to these people about what has happened to them. It's extremely interesting because Sackler was a large donator uh, to NYU Medical School. Mm -hmm. And everything has been, all ties have been cut. All buildings have been renamed um, at, at, when this first started coming out. So uh, I, I think that you know, not only is the company certainly um, responsible in many ways, but the doctors um, and uh, doctors who who prescribed it or gave it out. I, but to their to that point, you know, uh, maybe they did not know the addiction potential of these drugs. Um, so they just wanted to make you comfortable. Um, I'm glad that today when I had a root canal uh, that I was offered Tylenol. <laughs> today? Right, yeah. Yes, last week. Oh, gosh. And wow. it, it worked. It worked fine. And um, so I'm grateful that, you know, there's been an action uh, based on this research, based on these findings, and that more and more doctors and dentists have become aware of this and will really only offer to you um, Tylenol or Advil. All right. Yeah. That, yeah. I'm glad that you got better from your root canal. I know that's, that's not fun. It, it took, there was really no intense pain, but it, I uh, couldn't chew on that side uh, for a couple weeks, but right, I, yeah. I go to a excellent doctor and, you know, he, especially when it's over a weekend, so they want to make sure that you're comfortable. And yeah, since I can't, since Advil is not recommended when you have hypertension, it's only Tylenol, but I, it was, it, it worked well. All right. Yeah. And like, to your point, like it is um, the fact that like part of what's so sinister about it was that 
the family, like the company was telling medical providers like information that was not accurate. Like they knew that there were like a crisis was brewing, but they wanted doctors to think that it wasn't dangerous. So it's not like all these doctors like necessarily had like malice or were trying to get people hooked. Like they honestly were like, this person is in a lot of pain. And you know, there's things that happen where you do need a serious narcotic for your pain. Like there's circumstances where it's necessary, but if you're being pushed like faulty information, like for the sake of, you know, getting uptake to be higher than once that genie is out of the bottle, it's hard to put it back in. Well, it sounds like there was a lot of cover-ups. And I'm as a scientist who does work in the tobacco and nicotine field, it sounds reminiscent of some of the things that came out, the genie that popped out in the tobacco world. True, interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I know back in the day you could smoke everywhere and they made it seem like nothing yeah, it was would good happen. for you. They recommended yeah. it for like pregnant women at one point, I'm pretty sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember I asked my, I didn't know my grandmother used to smoke and I asked her, what made you quit? And she laughed and was like, it went up to like 75 cents a pack. So, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Now that's the times. <laughs> Ellis Joyce is like $20 a pack now in New York, right? Yeah. 20 Wow. It's a lot, yeah. Yeah, like it like really a is. vice tax or something. They up wow. Damn. Well, that's definitely good to consider the links between both of those things. And I do feel like, um, I guess, today is scary because people almost, like, expect to get them when they go to get certain procedures done. Um, at one point, I think I read an article about doctors saying that they were having a hard time from patients who were just automatically assume they were going to get some stronger drugs for like, you know, a root canal or something like that. And the doctor's like, no, you don't, you, you know, you off the Novocaine, you all right, you know, and um, it kind of this in the court of public opinion, it's like, well, you know, how far is being comfortable, right? Because at one point, it's going to run out. And, you know, if, if you don't, if at that point you're looking for it on the black market, that's never really a good thing because a lot of people sell their medication knowingly that they're not going to take it, you know? True. And there's also a flip side to that. Like when you talk about like medical racism and stuff, like there's been a lot of issues with people who are not white, like black people, Hispanic people, like showing up and they are just assumed to be like drug seeking. Like that's the way that they'll be labeled. Right. So they will be under prescribed pain medication that they really need because yeah. there's this assumption that like, oh, you're going to take it to sell it or whatever. So it's there's so many like overlapping issues with this. And that doesn't help with your trust of like going to the doctor of like actually trying to get help when you need it. Then by the time you do try to go, it's probably gotten worse. Like it's just really like a Leviathan of an issue. But you know, I know, like Judy was mentioning, the Sacklers, there's a lot of art wings and stuff and museums named after them that people are like, take their name off. Like, we don't, knowing what they were behind, like, I don't blame them. That's, it's really a shameful history that's been going on way too long. I think that uh, pain meds uh, and oxycodone codeine and other pain meds have their place 
as you were saying, in terms of, you know, uh, high intensity pain. I think it's a matter of having it available, but keeping a closer monitor on it. Right. For example, not being able to get a refill unless you check in with the doctor um, or just monitoring it uh, very closely. And uh, I would hate to see it not be available for people who actually need it. So the only way to do that is, as I said, to, to clearly monitor its use and the amount of time being used. And, and still, there will always be uh, people who take advantage of the system. That is very right. true. That is very true. All right. That was a really great segment. Thank you for that story, Jasmine. We're going to go ahead and hop into one of our music breaks for the day. And we have decided to theme our music selections this month in honor of Women Histories Month. So all month you'll be hearing um, a nice mix between some suggestions from our host. And today we're going to kick it off with Sweetie by Latigra. Did I say it right, Emily? Latigra? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> we'll be I right back. I love platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. 
Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next for World News, Emily's taking the segment. All right. So this story comes from a March 8th New York Times article by Anatoly Kermanev, uh, Natalie Kitroyev, and Kenneth P. Vogel, titled Venezuela Releases Imprisoned Americans After Talks with U.S. The article explains, quote, uh, Venezuela's authoritarian government on Tuesday released at least two imprisoned Americans, a potential turning point in the Biden administration's relationship with Russia's staunchest ally in the Western Hemisphere. The release followed a rare trip by a high-level U.S. delegation to Venezuela over the weekend to meet with President Nicolas Maduro, part of a broader Biden administration agenda in autocratic countries that may be rethinking their ties with President Vladimir V. Putin in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The talks with Venezuela, which has enormous proven oil reserves, assumed new urgency after Biden announced Tuesday that the United States would ban Russian oil and gas imports because of the invasion. That move is expected to further tighten the availability of crude oil on the global market and could raise gas prices at a moment when inflation has climbed at its fastest pace in 40 years. This is a step that we're taking to inflict further pain on Putin, but there will be costs as well here in the United States, Mr. Biden said of the ban on Russian oil. American officials said that the prisoner release was not part of a deal with Venezuela to restart oil sales in the, to the United States, which were banned under the Trump administration. Uh, for weeks, American business people who have worked in Venezuela have had back-channel discussions about resuming America's oil trade with Mr. Maduro's government. Venezuela could eventually help make up some of the shortfall caused by the ban on Russian oil, but industry experts warned that Venezuelan oil supplies would do little to tame American gas prices and inflation quickly. Increasing the government's production may take time after the years of mismanagement and underinvestment that have decimated the country's energy sector. Prominent members of Congress have also come out against efforts to thaw relations with Mr. Maduro, whose government has been accused of the, by the United Nations of systematic human rights violations. Uh, Nicolas Maduro is a cancer to our hemisphere, and we should not breathe new life into his reign of torture and murder, Senator Bob Menendez, a New Jersey Democrat who leads the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said on Monday in a statement. The released men are Gustavo Cardenas, an executive at the American branch of Venezuela's state oil company, who was detained in 2017, and Jorge Alberto Fernandez, Mr. Biden said in the statement. Uh, quote, Mr. Fernandez, a Cuban-American, was a tourist who was accused of terrorism for bringing a drone into Venezuela in February 2021, according to his lawyer. At least eight other U.S. nationalists remain jailed in Caracas on charges ranging from embezzlement to terrorism. Uh, quote, in 2017, Venezuelan security forces arrested six executives from Citgo Petroleum, the American branch of the state oil company, after the Maduro government summoned them to meetings in Caracas. The State Department has said that all six detainees are U.S. nationals. Uh, the executives were charged with financial crimes and jailed. Their former boss, Nelson Martinez, the head of the state oil company, was detained soon after them and died in custody a year later. The executives' families and their lawyers have said that the men who have come to be known as the Sitco Six are innocent and that they were lured to Caracas to be used by Mr. Maduro as pawns in his negotiations with the United States. Uh, quote, the Trump administration cut off diplomatic relations with Venezuela in 2019, 
closing the United States embassy in Caracas and imposing the ban on Venezuelan oil. A year later, the Justice Department indicted Mr. Maduro and more than a dozen other Venezuelan officials on drug trafficking charges, accusing them of facilitating cocaine shipments to the United States. Um, yeah, so that is the world story. It's, I thought it was pretty interesting because, I mean, it basically everything in the news right now is leads back to the the Russian um, invasion of Ukraine, and as does this story. Um, but I thought this was an interesting, different, per, different angle to it, how it's affecting U.S. relations with other nations and how especially how like Biden is trying to like leverage that to, um, you know, thaw relations with other nations. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a bit disturbing, like just how dependent the economy is on oil and like how much yeah. of, like how much geopolitical forces are shaped by that like I really you know not only because they, there's people being actively attacked and killed right now like during this invasion but also like for the planet like I would hope that this would be a turning point in understanding that we need to get off of this stuff instead of you know pursuing or not pursuing like different alliances and stuff to have access to something that is ultimately toxic you know we just talked to chief man and everything about like the way like the broader implications of like some of this like waste and like what it's doing to the earth so i look forward to the day when that's not such a factor and like what happens between countries like oil or not having oil or yeah, I think it's now more apparent than ever. Um, some of the environmental issues that we talked about today as well that are being brought up with this story um, and the geopolitical meaning of how we're all interconnected. You know, I hate that a lot of times our our um, interconnected stories are led by tragedy or things like this. But the reality is we all are dependent on one another. And when, you know, one part of the world is screwed, it don't take long for that vibration to get this way. Um you know, there's long-standing political ties between countries for various reasons, and I think now that it's in the forefront, um, it's just going to be interesting to see what's next on the fight for environmental justice, fossil fuels, all of these things that affect us day to day that sometimes we neglect to really shine a light on. Yeah, and I, who were Emily? Who were you saying was saying um, like? the venezuela mm -hmm. like about torture or like he's a murder he's a cancer like who was yeah. saying that? that was bob menendez he's a democrat democratic senator from new jersey okay so uh, i i would like to look more into like the history of like our relationship with venezuela mm -hmm. and all of that but i just think it's important to remember that you can find other places that the U.S. is allies with that have horrendous yeah. records with human rights violations. The leaders are known to have, like, off the top of my head, like Saudi Arabia, what yeah. happened with Jamal Khashoggi, the mm -hmm. journalist who was murdered. Like, that's horrific. But you won't necessarily see that same type of condemnation. So I just think it's important to keep in mind, like sometimes if you see people in power making those types of statements, but it's only against certain types that maybe there's probably more to it, like why some countries are considered, you know, some huge enemy and then others are not, because it can't just be that issue. Like if you don't have that problem with other mm -hmm. countries, like 
there's other things at play besides just that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Emily. That was a great story and a great recap. We'd like to thank you all so much for listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day in our dedication to Women's History Month is Beyonce with Spirit. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.